Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to How to Date, a show about how to master the messy, complex and downright bizarre world of dating when you really didn't think you'd be back here again. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm a psychologist, I'm one year out of my marriage, I'm a mum and I'm immersed in the world of online dating. Hi, I'm also your host, Monique Robin. I'm a mum of four kids and a yoga teacher trying to find men who like me rather than my limber joints. Okay, Mantha, tell me, who have we got on today's show? Okay, I'm very excited because I've got a fellow science geek with us today who is Professor Paul Eastwick, who is a professor of dating and relationships. Awesome. He should have some perlers for us. Perlers? Who uses the word perlers? Uh, me, Amantha, you know that. We've known each other for a very long time. Don't insult my Australian heritage. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. So, Monique, how has your week been in dating? It's actually been surprisingly non-eventful. But you know what? There is something that I'd love to ask your opinion on. You know, we've discussed in the past, Amantha, that um, me putting yoga teacher might give the wrong impression, either that it doesn't show that I'm intelligent or have some kind of academic qualification. And then my response to that is, well, if you need that, you're an elitist, so stuff you. But the other concern you had, and I agree with you, was that it could also give guys that belief that maybe I'm just into stretching myself into weird positions. Well, I actually am beginning to find another issue with being a yoga teacher. I spoke to this guy, but as soon as we ascertained that I was a yoga teacher or confirmed, because it's already written there, I had to sit there and listen to every sore joint, every niggle he had in his body for honestly 10 minutes. I could not get a word in. And it's not an uncommon scenario. It starts off like this. So you're a yoga teacher, yeah? And I go, yeah. And then no doubt the next line is, I really should do more yoga, to which I go, yeah, it's great for everyone, a really closed answer. And then I get... Yeah, because in my sporting career, I did this to my shoulder. I did that. I'm not joking. If I don't intercept and cut them off, I reckon I could be there for two hours listening to the niggles, the aches, what time of the day they occur. Are you sure they're not just looking for real advice from you? 
No, because I don't get a word in. Maybe people just crap on out of nervousness. But in actual fact, what it does is it opens the floodgates to hear the history of every physical pain (laughs) some person has ever experienced. Oh, God. And I'm not a doctor. This person needs a counsellor. This injury that they had, this niggle that they had is obviously causing them trauma. Okay, well, that's interesting that you say counsellor because, yeah, I... I can completely relate. So because we're still in stage four lockdown in Melbourne, I've been doing more Zoom dating. And what I'm finding, I'm I'm finding that my Zoom dates are like confessionals. Like that <laughs> that's that's the best way I can describe it. So as you know, I'm a psychologist, but what most people or I think most of these guys don't understand is that there are different types of psychologists and what I'm finding, maybe across several Zoom dates, I've had people, and this is this is the first interaction that we've had beyond just messaging on an app. I've had people confess a gambling addiction where they gambled nearly half a million dollars of the family's money away, just boom, gone. Good, um, f- good first date topic. I like yeah, it. Yeah, totally. I've had people confess uh, in around daytime drinking habits and that they got into really bad daytime drinking habits. Not something that's on my list of what I'm looking for in a partner. <laughs> um, really? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I thought, yeah, I thought maybe. Do I want a daytime drinker? No, probably not. I've had a lot of mental health issues. And by that, I don't mean things like anxiety and depression and very, very common mental health issues, but more very specific mental health issues that have been diagnosed by a psychiatrist that I'm surprised that they're revealing that to me within the first half hour. And and then the other thing that I get into, because I do, I do like to probe around their relationship with their parents and childhood, there have been some very, very, let's say some attachment issues where they've been abandoned by a significant parent or parents in their childhood. And I can just see how that's played out with their relationships. This is in the first half hour of talking to them. It's actually a lot of pressure because also then that begs the question, do you spend that first 10 minutes of that first half hour giving them a tutorial on subspecializing in psychology? (laughs) And do you say, I am an organizational psychologist? By that I mean I don't like hearing people's problems, which I know you do. You're very, very open and you're very good to talk to, but not with some guy you're trying to become attracted to. So, yeah, someone that's a gambler, that's not on my list of qualities that I'm looking for. But, yeah, it's funny. And and for me, I reflect on is this me or is this a co-created thing? So maybe they're going psychologist. I don't particularly want to educate them on what an organisational psychologist does, which if anyone is listening and our listeners probably don't know, it's someone that specialises in helping people perform well at work, in the workplace, not dealing with mental health issues, not a clinical psychologist that is seeing people for therapy sessions uh, and to work through various traumas of their life. So I don't do that and I don't know how to do that. Um, But what I do wonder though, because I do want to get to the bottom of things quickly, because you know that 
I do like to be quite efficient with this dating thing. <laughs> oh, you, I, I couldn't believe that of you, Amantha. Efficiency has never been your strong point. Joking. Um, yeah, I can't even understand how someone like you, who is so goal-driven, who's so good at directing something, would even allow these people to waffle on for 20, 30 minutes. You're actually more tolerant than I gave you credit for. <laughs> um, but actually, no, it's interesting. Like at the end of the day, there's an interesting human stories. I am in the back of my mind thinking, how do I politely end this conversation? <laughs> Here's a question. When you've got that 10-minute timer on, for, for remember that tip where you said you put them into a 10-minute time frame, and does that give them enough time? Has that, has that solved the problem? Yeah. Well, interestingly, I tried. I tried out the 10-minute timer tip. So I had a Zoom date with someone during the week and we'd been messaging and then I started the Zoom date. I was actually a bit nervous to introduce the 10-minute timer mm. concept. And for those that didn't listen to that episode, this is basically thinking about how can you make Zoom dates a bit more efficient and also make sure that you're kind of not stuck on it for an hour, hour and a half when you know within the first few minutes that this is just not going to work. So I explained that I was going to set the timer for 10 minutes and at the end of the 10 minutes, we would both decide whether we want to continue. So it's it's not just a me in charge thing. It's do you want to continue? And what I found interesting is that the guy on the receiving end was slightly taken aback, slightly amused, but also I felt like it put the power in my hands and, and it was about him like passing the 10 minute test is the dynamic it created. Yeah. Even though you had meant that you would both be under examination. Exactly. Which would mean an even playing field. It was bizarre. So, and I didn't mean it that way. I know you didn't. I did. I just meant it. Because it's not like you to be a natural leader and and take hold of the, uh, the control and the power over a project or a situation. No, but, but I know sincerely your true nature was, was not planning to come through. I get it. But it totally did. But he did pass the 10-minute test. Okay, good. Oh, that's good. And then it was funny, the next time we had a Zoom, he said, are you going to set the timer again? As a joke, but possibly there was a bit of truth behind that joke. So I feel like I'm kind of in the driver's seat now. <laughs> That's kind of raunchy in a way. Maybe he had practised. Maybe he, <laughs> he, even though the power was with you, he was a really, really, really good student. So you might, by saying, don't be silly, you've passed the test, we're not doing a second test, he was probably really disappointed. He wanted to impress you with what a good student he was. I know, he'd probably gone away and, like, written a 10-minute stand-up routine. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> with some questions interspersed in amongst. <laughs> yeah, you you probably should have said, well, you know, if you're up for it, I am. <laughs> Let him perform. Uh, so that is our week, Monique. Yeah, it is our week. I'm going to be revising whether or not I should write yoga teacher as my job description for that reason. Yeah, I think I need to write air hostess or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, it is time to introduce today's guest, who is Professor Paul Eastwick. He is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Davis, and he has spent his career researching dating and relationships. So on that note, let's 
go to Paul and learn what the research tells us about dating. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to start with a huge study that you did using machine learning to predict relationship satisfaction. And I want to know, how can you predict how happy you'll be with a relationship partner? Like, what did that study find and what can it tell us? So, this study looked at several data sets, uh, 43 data sets, in fact, that had data on couples. So these are already people who are in relationships together. And a common part of any couple study is that you would get um, the various participants in your study to complete a whole bunch of measures about themselves, so their personality, their desires, their goals, a whole bunch of information about who they are as a person. And you also routinely ask people for a lot of information about the relationship itself. How do you view this relationship? Do you think you have a lot of conflict? Do you feel like you're tr you trust your partner? Do you often express appreciation for one another, right? And so the goal of this study was to try to use all of that information, both those individual differences that both couple members had reported, as well as what both couple members thought about their relationship, and try to use that to predict what is in many ways the thing that uh, sort of it's it's a, a very central uh, construct that we really care about, which is are you happy in this relationship? What is your satisfaction level? So how can we use what you found in that study to be more successful early on in the dating process in terms of what we're looking for? Yeah, it's tricky because Essentially, what we found in that study was that, you know, sure enough, you can predict who's happy and who's not, and you can predict that from their individual differences, you know, so people who tend to be more satisfied with life also tend to be people who are satisfied in their relationship, right? We also found that people who report low levels of conflict, people who are who report a lot of trust and a lot of appreciation in their relationships, these people also tended to be happier. But one tricky thing is that we didn't find much in the way of intersections among individual differences. And if you were going to try to set people up with quote unquote the right person from the beginning, well, you wouldn't have the relationship reports to build on yet, right? Because you haven't started a relationship. You don't know if you trust each other and if you appreciate each other and if you have a lot of conflict. All I know is here are some things you can report about yourself and here are some things that I can report about me. Those individual differences are the only things that I can conceivably use to assess fit. And the problem is those analyses didn't really reveal very much. In other words, we saw really no evidence that certain kinds of people work well with certain other kinds of people, right? Yes, you are more compatible with some people than with others, but I'm not sure we can learn much about compatibility by getting a bunch of questionnaires and sort of getting things about the two people absent the two of you having had interactions and, you know, starting to get to know each other. So then from that point, is that where the role of physical appearance and physical attraction and that chemistry that we can't define comes into it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think thinking about chemistry is a useful way, you know, often when we talk about like chemistry and compatibility, like I, I think about these 
terms similarly in the sense that they, they tell us something about that these two people are really clicking, right? And that is certainly what people want when they're looking for a partner. It's what they want in their relationship once they're actually in a relationship. Most people aren't going for the relationship where it's like, aha, I got the best person I could possibly get. Look, you know, <laughs> you know, if you look at this, my partner on paper, they're the best. That's like not really how most people think about it. What most, <laughs> the way most people approach it is they, they think, yeah, I want somebody that works really well with me. And that's compatibility, that's chemistry, that's fit. And so that is what matters to most people. And the problem is predicting it. Predicting it seems very, very, very hard to do if you haven't begun the relationship yet. So what's the role of physical appearance then in giving it a go so that you are at that point where you're in a relationship and you can then predict it? So do we is that how we make that connection through physical appearance? And is that equally important to men and women? Yeah, physical appearance is an interesting uh, variable to look at in this context. So it's sort of common knowledge that physical appearance matters a lot, especially in initial attraction context where people are getting to know each other. Now, that can mean a couple of different things. That can mean, well, we all agree on who the hot people are and the hot people get all the dates. Okay. And that is true to some extent. It is an imperfect relationship, but it is certainly true that people who are consensually viewed as attractive tend to have more options on the mating market, right? Online dating studies will show you this. Lots of initial impression studies will show you this. That is not all of where physical attractiveness comes from. Physical attractiveness is also very much rooted in chemistry and compatibility. People will often disagree in whether or not they think somebody else is attractive. And that extent of disagreement, that compatibility component, is actually larger than the extent to which we agree, generally speaking, on whether or not somebody is attractive. So there is also chemistry. It also tends to be unpredictable chemistry. I don't, we don't know why I think this person is exceptionally hot and you don't. But that is another important element to it. So many times chemistry is right there from the beginning, right? It's right there It's and, and you can see it in ratings of physical attractiveness and you can see it in sort of the snappiness of the conversation. You can see it in a variety of different ways. But it's very, very hard to get that kind of information from, let's say, an online dating profile and certainly from questionnaires you might fill out about yourself ahead of time. And I know your research has revealed really interesting things around how our perception of someone's attractiveness can change over time. Like I think you did a university study where there was one particular person that was a three out of 10 in terms of attractiveness. And then by the end of semester, they were a seven out of 10. I'm not sure if I've quoted that correctly, but can you talk about that research and why does that perception of how attractive someone is change so much? Like that seems crazy. Yeah. So um, physical attractiveness, it tends to be examined in these sort of initial impression, initial attraction context for the most part in the sense that, oh, you know, we want to see how physical attractiveness predicts, you know, sort of who gets the emails to go on dates or who gets asked out on a first date or, you know, those sorts of indicators. But we can also ask, okay, let's say, you know, you first get to know a bunch of people. And, and this goes beyond college situations too, right? I mean, you start a new work, you know, in a new work environment, right? You, you bring in a, a group of, of new people to a team. And immediately, 
people achieve consensus about who's physically attractive and who's not. But the underappreciated component of physical attractiveness is that it can change. It can change based on the other features that the person has, and it can also change idiosyncratically, meaning that over time, I come to see this person as less attractive than I initially thought because once I got to know, you know, their style of humor and, you know, the way they sort of jerked people around, I ended up thinking that person was less attractive. But I had the opposite reaction to somebody else who I initially didn't think was that attractive, but then there was something about their personality that really elevated them for me over time. And that's what you see if you look in uh, broader samples that over time – people start to disagree about whether people are attractive as they get to know that person in real life. So what this suggests to me is that physical attractiveness, it is a real thing that we can all agree on and we all achieve consensus on, but it actually starts to fade away. It actually starts to become far more blurry and uh, murky over time as people are getting to know each other. And frankly, you know, if I were designing a mating system, I would design it that way, especially if what I wanted were people to pair up with each other and not have some sort of uber competitive winner take all mating situation, right? And so I'm actually I'm actually very thankful that th that human mating works this way because what it means is that most people, if they're in a context where they can get to know other people, they're going to have a chance to find somebody who is uniquely appealing to them and to whom they are uniquely appealing. I mean, that's fascinating to start with, but how do we use that when, like in Australia, we're in various stages of lockdown and we're very reliant on the dating apps right now to find someone. Like certainly in Melbourne, we're not allowed into bars right now. So how should we be thinking about almost filtering for physical attractiveness in terms of people that, that we find attractive on the apps, given so much of it is visual, like Monique and I are using Bumble and Hinge, I think, predominantly at the moment. Is that right for you, Monique? Yeah, that's exactly right. We're also trying to reduce the amount of apps we use so that we can really focus on the ones we do use. And I'm also very sick of um, trying to pick people up in the supermarket. It's just degrading. <laughs> yeah. So what are we doing, Paul? What's your advice? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. You know, in some ways, what I've always classically suggested with dating apps is that it's very easy to spend a lot of time doing a lot of swiping and reading a lot of profiles at the expense of actually spending time meeting people, even if those meetings are brief. Now, I imagine that uh, during lockdown and during quarantine, that you know, face-to-face -face meetings can still happen, presumably over Zoom or FaceTime, etc. But how much is that giving people a sense of whether there is unique chemistry, right? Whether there is compatibility, is that going to allow physical attraction, you know, allow you to get a sense of like, you know, from their profile, I wasn't quite sure, but actually I think he's pretty good looking. Like it are those video chat's going to allow people to do that. I don't know if the good research has been done on exactly what video tells you. So I guess my standard advice still applies in the sense that like, boy, doing video chats with people is going to be a lot better than spending a lot of time on profiles. But to really leverage this situation, like, I mean, 
what what I would want to design, I suppose, is some sort of service that brought people together and had them interact, but actually for somehow forced them to do it more than once, right? That actually gave people second and third and fourth chances to really allow those idiosyncratic perceptions to come to the fore and to allow the consensual attractiveness, you know, the competition that emerges from that to dissipate a little bit. How long and how many times do we need to act, interact with someone according to the research to see if their physical attractiveness is going to grow on us or if it's actually going to shrink over time? Oh, it's a good question. I only know of a handful of studies and sort of the way they've looked at this. You know, it was a study that we conducted about six years ago now. And what we had found was that you saw evidence of consensus decreasing, not to zero by any means, um, but you saw it, evidence of it declining, you know, within about 10 weeks. So this is like an academic semester. So these are people who are, you know, interacting a couple times a week. And, you know, in weeks one and two, there's pretty strong agreement about who's attractive and who's not. And then by the end of the semester, 10 weeks later, people are instead exhibiting more disagreement. But again, another way of thinking about that is that, oh, you know, they interacted something on the order of, you know, of 20 times over that period of time. So in some ways, like maybe that's a lot of interaction at the same time, like, could you get that from a few more intense dates and intense conversations? Probably. That's the kind of thing that hasn't really been that well developed. And it's unfortunate too, because you know, most online dating apps and online dating companies, at least to my knowledge, don't do a lot of following people after they actually go on that first face-to-face -face date, right? I mean, they, they surely have the data on whether people stop using the app or not, but I don't know if they have detailed information about like how many days did you go on and how did it go and are you now exclusively dating this person, etc.? 
because that's ultimately not really a question about compatibility. So it is, I don't really have a very good answer about how much compatibility translates from video to face to face. If I, if I had a guess and now I'm just talking experientially, like sort of, you know, what I would hypothesize, I would bet that a video gives you something. It gives you a portion of what that interactive chemistry is going to be like. It's going to be better than just looking at a photograph or reading a profile or even you know chatting or texting back and forth. But whether it will be the full experience, I, I sort of suspect that there's still something that comes from face-to-face meeting and multiple face-to-face meetings that, that really computer-mediated forms really can't quite substitute for just yet. Paul, back to that um, 10-week period where physical attractiveness can change from, say, week one to week 10. Amantha and I have always, when analysing each other's dating history, have always found that we seem to have different behaviours in terms of how we rate people's physical attractiveness. Amantha is always wise to give somebody a second go because she knows that they can be, say, a six on date one and then they can either remain or go below a six or dramatically go up to, say, an eight or a nine, whereas I, if they're not a nine, I'm like I'm not interested because I know it's not going to budge. But if I find a nine, yes, they can very easily go down from there. So, yeah. <laughs> so, is it true that in your say sample set, you did have a disparity amongst the individuals being studied? Like some people were more rigid and didn't change their rating, and others maybe changed dramatically. It's a great question. There's a way of analyzing the data that would allow us to look at that. And essentially, your hypothesis is that there's also variability in the way that variability shifts, which is like variability squared. But I suspect that you're right, that some people are sort of more willing to give that benefit of the doubt or able to give that benefit of the doubt or are willing to penalize people later based on things that they learn about somebody's personality. So I agree with your intuition that there are going to be individual differences along these lines, but why that describes the two of you or why that might describe why one person does one thing or one person does another thing, yeah, I don't really know. So, Paul, I need your advice then. Uh, Amantha a few weeks ago went out with a seven on a socially distanced walk allowed. And then she's so seven in us is, yeah, cute, but, you know, sitting on the fence, not not overwhelmed with excitement. Yep, yep. And by the next day, that guy was had a nine or ten in the bag, right? <laughs> and... <laughs> Metaphorically and literally, sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, I'm yesterday went out on a socially distanced walk with a seven. Normally, that would mean that guy is going to be ghosted from that point on. But I spoke to Amantha and she recalled her data and said, yeah. Remember what's his face? He was a seven and moved quickly to a 10. I said, yeah, but that's you. And, (laughs) but she has convinced me to go out with seven again and, you know, to, to give it a chance. Now I've obviously got all my inherent, uh, beliefs about myself that I'm very rigid 
on giving yep, yep. this guy the opportunity to move to nine. Do you think it's not worth my time? I'm quite busy. Um, well, yes. Uh, so do I think it's worth your time? Probably, although I don't, you know, I can't speak to how busy you are. Sometimes people are very, very busy. And, <laughs> and you got to get it right from the get-go. But here is, I think, a relevant data point that I can speak to, which is that most of the time, for most relationships that will turn into something, we don't think that person is a nine right away. It's just by far the modal experience is that you initially have a huh reaction. And if it's going to go anywhere, it's going to grow from there. Now, there are, of course, exceptions to that. We're not meant to think the guys are nine. I'm going to be so fit by the end of this lockdown now if I'm walking every day with sevens. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I mean that is um, an ancillary benefit, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> but I, th- I think that, you know, we can all remember the moments where you meet somebody and it's – Sparks fly. I mean, hopefully for the two of you, but maybe just for one person in this dyad and you persist and you persuade the other person. But these events are very memorable. But at least from what we've seen in the data, and again, data that track initial moment of meeting all the way through the end of the relationship, that data barely exists. There's only a very small handful of studies that have looked at that kind of time frame. And generally speaking, the extent to which you hit it off at the beginning doesn't end up mattering all that much for where this thing is going to go. Yes, sometimes people, they meet each other and they they hook up almost instantly, but that actually bodes no better or poorly for how long this relationship is going to last on average. Same thing for like feeling pretty negatively in the beginning, right? Now, again, you feel negatively, you know, if the person's a two, right, odds are by the next date, like maybe they'll rise to a four or five. Like, like your opinions of a person are going to be associated across time points. But how your trajectory goes, sort of how you get to this point of where you really feel great about somebody and you want to be in a relationship with them, it is very, very hard to predict that from an initial impression. That's, I think that's fascinating. And something I wanted to ask, because you've done a lot of research around, you know, what what's sort of happening in those early stages of a relationship and what can be predicted. And you found that there's actually no strong evidence in terms of seeing whether you can predict whether a relationship will be short-term or long-term or casual. And I want to know, like, from from your data, what, what point does romantic interest tend to plateau or decline in short-term relationships? Like, at what point can we tell where something is going, if indeed it's going anywhere? Yeah, and, and again, I want to reiterate, like, the, the data are imperfect on this point. We What we do to look at this idea is we take people who have had short-term and long-term relationships that have already run their course, and then we give them this procedure of sort of think back over the various events in the relationships, and we give them dates and, so, you know, sort of have them plot when specific events happened in their relationship. And we have them chart how they felt about this person, and you see a lot of ups and downs, right, consistent with what we've been talking about. But if you look at 
what seems to be happening on average. Both relationships that will be short-term and relationships that will be long-term, they sort of start in the same middling place. They slowly go up in terms of how positively you feel about the person. And it's about the point where, you know, maybe you've hooked up once or twice, maybe you've spent the night, where people's feelings start to really solidify. And they start to uh, land at the distinction between, you know what, I like, this feels like a casual thing to me. I'm not sure I really want this to go anywhere serious versus like, I am very, very into this person. And so the way we interpreted that was that the sort of initial sexual encounter, if you want it to even get that far, that that encounter is really part of a barometer that men and women are using to see where they want this thing to go. And it's actually when the initial, you know, it's not that short-term relationships are for sex and long-term relationships are for bonding. It's that when the sex is good, people think like, "Mm, maybe we can do that again. And then maybe we can do it again after that. And then six months later, you have a bond with the person. Whereas it's maybe the sex that's not so great, maybe I'd be willing to have it again once or twice, but then sort of let it go from there. Like that's what a short-term relationship looks like. Okay, so that implies, Paul, that sex is a really good barometer for measuring our level of satisfaction in a relationship that can then make us repeat that behaviour again and again to then eventually form a bond. So in your research you mentioned that we are looking for similar qualities Um, whether it's for a long-term or short-term relationship. What sort of qualities are we looking for that match? Do we need to have sex with them to work out whether we've got similar qualities? Sex is also very much about compatibility in the same way that uh, relationship satisfaction is about compatibility, right? We've actually seen, we have a little bit of data on this. We have seen no evidence that some people are better at sex than others. Meaning there is no consensus among your former sex partners about how good you are. Oh, that's interesting. That suggests is that it's all compatibility, right? But do, but do former sex partners really go out on a coffee date to discuss their researchers? They're probably not going to tell you to your face. Well, no, we, we these data actually come from, they, I mean, this is sort of a brief aside, but there was a website that appeared for a few years, and I don't know if it's around anymore, but the general idea behind this website was that women would go on and rate the sort of sexual and dating prowess of men they had actually been with or liked in some capacity. And so imagine an online dating website with these men and it was like pulling their Facebook profiles, which I think in retrospect was probably not um, a legal thing for this website to be doing, but it was pulling these Facebook pages and then women were essentially reviewing these men and, and the reviews were all public. And so so I'm the only woman that has a former sex partner WhatsApp group. Like it's just so much more efficient than people. <laughs> uh, like seriously, what a, what a lot of unnecessary work. Um, one quick question, I guess what I'm really asking you to be straight yeah. to the point. So seven, should I have sex with him to find out whether he's a nine? 
I mean, if you want. Like, is that, no, but genuinely, is that really going to help me determine his level of attractiveness? I mean, this feels very close to, like, advice giving, but, like, probably. Like, right, I mean, I, I, I mean, could you, could you get it through more time? Uh, almost surely. But I do think that there's a sexual compatibility component that also that, that people want to assess. There are cases where, you know, this is going good. I really like this person. I really like this person. And then the first sexual thing happens, whatever it is. And you're just like, oh, oh that did not work. Like that just felt wrong. Like, you know, that, that, that something about that didn't click. And, and it is also possible to have the opposite experience where you think like, I'm not that into this person, but then something happens. And then you find yourself thinking about it thinking like, that that would be great to do that again. So it's, it, I guess maybe the question is if you continue to be open to seeing where this is going and presumably this guy's also open to seeing where this is going. It's more information that will tell you more about compatibility and, uh, and, you know, more information is ultimately something that, that we're all, we all really want in these uh, situations. And can I ask Paul, cause I know we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I guess it'd be great to get some final advice from you about for those of us that are on the dating apps, which is probably the majority of people that are looking for love in Australia. I'd say a lot of people are on the dating apps because of COVID. How can we improve our chance of success? I would revert to the advice of, you know, like less time on the apps, more time meeting the people, presumably that you meet on the apps, but like more time doing some sort of a, it, like interaction, right? Even though yeah, we all get Zoom fatigue, right? It is exhausting to do lots of video chats, but I do think we get more, you get more information in that sense. And then I suppose anything that is going to either convey more things about you that will allow somebody to assess compatibility or, you know, you learn things about, uh, about somebody else's compatibility. Like I, I do think that, that online dating by its nature tends to prompt a mindset that gets people looking for the best thing, right? What's the best one out there right now, right? As if we were shopping. And the thing is, is that the dating isn't really like that, right? Maybe it feels like that on the first day of work or the first day of camp or the you know, first day of high school. But after a while, what you're really looking for is somebody that you click with. And I think that it's not easy to use the apps uh, to get out of that shopping mentality when using the apps. But thinking about you know, always keeping compatibility is what matters in the forefront of your mind, I think is probably going to allow people to have better experiences on the whole. Awesome. Well, Paul, it's been so fascinating talking to you. I feel like I've learned a lot of things that I can apply to be a better data. Oh, good. Thank you so much for Thanks, your time. Thanks, Paul. Much appreciated. You bet. Thanks for having me. I thought that chat was absolutely fascinating just to get a research-backed point of view on dating. And I think for me, Monique, 
the thing that stuck with me most is just how much our attraction to someone can change over time. Uh, Like from a three out of 10 to a seven out of 10, that's mental. I know it's fascinating because it makes the rules of attraction so much more complicated, which they are, but to have that backed by research is just great to know that, you know, that actually is the case. And it's pretty bloody depressing when you think about online dating, where how do you get to know someone and almost give them a chance if that attraction is not there at the beginning, like it would be if you met them at work or something like that. Yeah, how, how do you give the threes a chance if, you know, they have the potential of becoming sevens, but it's really hard to assess that in a swipe left or right? I know. Does that mean we just need to swipe on everyone that's a three out of ten and up? <laughs> well, yeah, probably, but who has the time for that? Who has the time for that? Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, Monique, our hot tip of the week, I know that you've got something that you've been trying out. Can you share what that is? Yes, Samantha, I can. You know how I've been pretty stuck on this dating fatigue concept? So, I have been acutely aware of dating fatigue when it presents itself and it gets to a point in most of my interactions online that the conversation just seems to be so formulaic that eventually it fizzles out. And I'm really likely to go along with that and move on to the next conversation. And that we now have had identified to us is dating fatigue because you've been there so many times, the conversation becomes innocuous and not relevant. So it's at that point that I am triggered to then spice up the conversation when normally I wouldn't put the energy in. So for example, when it gets to one word conversations like, how was your day? Good. Are they they the sort of conversations you're having at the moment? Well, no, that's when you can tell that it's just formulaic fatigue-related conversations because you're just not putting the energy in. And in the past, I'd look at these guys and go, you're just dull and boring, but not realise that they're actually just experiencing dating fatigue. So I make it my objective, and here comes my tip, to really go that extra mile to get some oomph out of them. So that's when I'll perhaps exchange with more of a thought thoughtful or mindful comment and ask them something really specific, like tell me something in your day that made you feel really good about yourself and what are you going to do tomorrow to feel good about yourself? Oh, nice. That's cool. And it's been really positive because I have found that it's re-energized the conversation and to my shock, these guys aren't boring. They're just fatigued. They're just fatigued. Gosh, and who wouldn't be fatigued? Like particularly when, certainly in Melbourne, we haven't been allowed to go out in a bar for it feels like five years or something like that at this point. I like that. I reckon I've used a version of that. Not, I don't know if it was dating fatigue, but it was just where things kind of fizzled or where someone who I was messaging and was quite interested in just didn't reply one day, probably because they were dating fatigued or they had a million messages on the go with other people. So a strategy that I've used, and I actually use this at work as well. So bonus career advice as well. Um, uh, Like when I'm trying to reach out to, you know, like let's just say a prospect at work that is just not getting back to my emails. So I will send a multiple choice question that basically says, hey, you haven't written back. I'm thinking... A, you're 
just not that into me. B, but you wouldn't say that at work. I wouldn't say that at work. No, no, no. I'll give another option there. Um, I'd just say, ah, uh, the timing's not right to solve this particular problem of yours. Um, B, uh, something else. Or C, you've been attacked by a fire-breathing dragon and you're stuck on the floor and you can't get up and you need some help, in which case, please let me know. It gets a Hilarious. response at work. Yeah, I love it. You and s- also, <laughs> uh, I'm glad we had this opportunity to clarify that Amantha does not endorse cracking on to prospective clients. <laughs> so she does use different narratives for this game at work than she does at dating, in dating. Okay, just as an aside. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to – that is not a way to – pick up for me cracking onto clients. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I feel is that when you push somebody beyond a point where they would normally disengage, that's where you get the true magic and you really find out who they are because, as we all know, effort is met with effort. Definitely. And I think it's it's just a good way of cutting through because, quite frankly, I don't think there's a lot of creativity going on in online dating and messaging apps. Like it's pretty dull what certainly what I'm getting I think what you're getting as well and I think like if you can sort of spice it up with something unexpected or creative I feel like that this is this is always getting a good response back it sounds like from both our experiences yeah Amantha I really believe that reframing that dull dying off of conversation into oh this is my opportunity to really make a impact has really a helped my dating esteem and it's really helped me break through and and be um, recognised as not just one of the many messages in, in their inbox. Yeah, I think that's important. And you know what, just my efficiency tip, and I have a feeling I actually texted you my attack by a dragon you with an efficiency tip (laughs) that doesn't make sense (laughs) so I have I have so many canned responses in my inbox for work efficiency but for dating I feel like we could get into canned responses here just to be really efficient about our messaging because I I I'm almost positive I texted you my dragon message because I feel like you were going to use this a while ago. Yes. yes. Did you end up using it? I don't think I did. I forgot, but I'm now going to definitely. I love it. Yeah, I think you just need to save it as a note on your phone somewhere so you can just like copy and paste whenever you need to reinvigorate something. That's such a good tip. I love that. (laughs) But just don't send your dating reinvigorating text to your work prospects. (laughs) Definitely don't do that. Yeah, make sure you separate them. That is it for today's show. If you have enjoyed How to Date, why not share it with other people that you think could benefit from some of the advice that we are offering. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love to get your feedback. Please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listened to this show from. And we will see you next time. See you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 